0: Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals, and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition, and intellectual life more broadly. I hope you enjoy the conversation. On this episode, I talk to John Rose the Associate Director of the Civil Discourse Project at the Kennan Institute for Ethics at Duke University. We talk about his class, How to Think in an Age of Political Polarization, and his efforts to promote civil discourse on the Duke campus and in American higher educations more broadly. I hope you enjoy the conversation. John Rose, welcome to Keeping It Civil, and thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I recently read a profile of you where I learned that Jerry Seinfeld had visited your undergraduate class at Duke. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I meant for that to be an urban myth. I didn't
1: tell anyone (laughs) he was going to come. And then I I didn't tell anyone afterwards, but word has gotten around. Oh, you kept it secret. I thought it would be cooler that way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, It was fantastic. His daughter is in my class. I've been talking about humor in the weeks leading up to his visit because i think it's quite relevant to the subject of the class civil discourse political polarization i'm not the only person who's observed that the most politically intolerant people on all sides tend to be humorless incapable of laughing at themselves so i guess word of this got to jerry and he was on campus for a meeting of some kind and and said would you like it if i stopped into your class and you could ask me a few questions well what's the answer to that of course of course yes, right? of course all Right? Uh, how
0: did his daughter <laughs> feel about her dad uh being in the class was she at all embarrassed or is <laughs> is she totally used to her dad uh kind of bursting in on all sorts of different situations
1: yeah, no she, she was fine with it. i mean I, I i we had chatham house rules in the class but you won't mind me telling this i i, I one of my prepared questions for jerry was two fundamental truths of the world one is Jerry Seinfeld's one of the funniest men in the world. The other is, uh, that your dad isn't funny. Exactly. Asked about the age of 12 and I said, in, these, in your case, these cosmological constants. Collide. What happens? And, and what did he say? So I, it, they had to say that his, his son was there too. Was was their dad funny? And they said, "Yeah, he's funny." So oh, they can the that. He's the one guy who who overcame who overcame the uh, the the problem that is dad humor yes. and
0: being being told you're just a dad. You know, my dad actually almost never even attempted to be funny, and so he never really ran into this problem. But we had these very good family friends, and they had three daughters, and watching that guy just get absolutely absolutely just skewered by them was just so brutal. Every joke would just be met with the greatest disdain. So if Jerry Seinfeld can break through that, uh, I have even more respect for the man. But what did he make of your proposition that political extremists are humorless?
1: You know, I I think like a lot of comedians today, he realizes that political correctness is, is, is going to at some point constrain the boundaries of humor. We're already seeing it it's going to come at a cost. We can put the boundaries over here or there and put it this way. You're going to risk offending fewer people, but it will come at the cost of our collective psychic survival. And so that's a cost, but importantly, he like others understands that it's not the comedians who set that it's the people, but, but in general, I, I got to say, I think comedy's become a battleground in our culture wars I think for those of us who, who want to keep the Overton window open or expand it where it's been narrowed, comedy is an important tool because it's disarming. If you can laugh about something together, chances are you can disagree about it together. It's a social lubricant. It allows us to, uh, it teaches us humility and that's important in civil discourse and it's lacking in our current discourse. So yeah, I, I think Jerry, like other comedians, realizes that humor actually has a has a very important role to play I'm a, I'm a free speech guy and i gotta think i hope that in our country when you can't talk about certain things anywhere that the last two places you would be able to talk about them would be the college classroom and the stand-up comedy stage those two are the last right. bastions of free speech, and you combine in a, in them in a healthy functioning democracy.
0: You were able to Those combine them places. in a unique way?
1: Yes, I guess I'm, There was one day
0: in Durham, North Carolina, where the two became one. Henry. <laughs> amazing, amazing. I'm not surprised if anyone was going to do it. John, it would be you. Ta- but, but tell me about your students. Did any of them push back against this notion in the class? Because Jerry Seinfeld is probably a pretty intimidating guy to push back against. Um, you may have, you know, seen the way that some of these stand-up comedians deal with him hecklers and other interjections when they're on stage did any of the students say well you know some of these guys like louis ck you know indecently exposing himself in front of staff members or colleagues or whatever it's not all just fun and games was anyone able to make those arguments the way he presents himself is a good
1: argument for his own beliefs about these things that is he's so dang funny and you can see that he's well intentioned, right? Comedy always has context. You can see somebody's trying to make you laugh, and therefore it's harder to get angry at somebody and say, "No, you can't joke about that." <laughs> we were talking about can you make jokes about certain ethnic groups? Only certain people, oh, only certain kids. You you have to have permission to, you know. This is nonsense. This is funny or not? And you know, he gave the example of uh, it occurring to him uh, the other day that there are no Chinese restaurants in China. They're just restaurants.
0: Makes sense. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's hilarious, right? She's like, oh, you have to be Chinese to laugh. Though, that's no, it's funny. We all know it's funny, right? It's just a disposition to the world. Not taking yourself too seriously, not taking the world too seriously, being able to laugh at,
0: at anything, right? That's important. Yeah, as someone who was the quintessential class clown through my entire somewhat dubious school career that definitely resonates with me, that a bit of uh, laughter can alleviate almost any situation, even a contentious political situation. I, I mean, I definitely agree, but one thing that jumps out at me about this situation with Jerry Seinfeld is just what an amazing experience you're offering your students in this classroom. And for the uninitiated out there, John and I know each other relatively well. I attended a seminar with John last summer based on the idea of teaching exactly the sort of class that that we've been talking about here, but for the uninitiated out there, what exactly is this class that you're teaching at Duke and, and what are you doing there? The title of the class is How to Think
1: in an Age of Political Polarization. How to think, not what to think. It's a class that is quite explicit about its intentions. I want my students to, one, better understand polarization in our country the way it's affecting us, the way that tribalism makes us dumber versions of ourselves. But secondly, and this is the important part, I require my students to engage in civil conversation about hot-button political topics, and I don't tell them what to think. I give them, hopefully, examples of, an example of myself, of intellectual virtues when discussing the text myself and presenting the arguments, when responding
0: to student questions, Mm -hmm. and give them... What sort of virtues do you try to model yourself in most situations? Charity, first and foremost. Charity
1: takes the form of interpreting other people's remarks or authors' arguments in a text in what seems to you the most reasonable possible interpretation or spin. It means talking in a way, and this is body language, tone, facial mannerisms, that demonstrates that you are trying to reach a better understanding of the other person's view, that you're not looking to own them, as the kids say, uh, dominate them. But you also don't necessarily agree with them, I presume. You don't have to, yes. And these are not mutually exclusive. I think this is a fallacy. People think, oh, you're saying that I need to not have strong beliefs or I need to be a moderate. No, no, no. no. This is about how you talk. And there's a way to talk that demonstrates that what you're trying to do is one, to kind of collectively get closer to the truth. And two, that you are in the end, interested in a common life, democratic life with the person you're talking to, rather than just embarrassing them,
0: and coercing them. So are you aiming for a sort of mutual tolerance or are you aiming for some sort of productive well, to- debate or that, how do you that, see these that things That word playing tolerance, so
1: Henry. That's a, I mean, there's tolerance that's indifference. I don't, I don't want that. I don't think that's a virtue. But I think something like a patient forbearance of a difference or perceived wrong for the sake of kind of keeping a life together going, right? So for the sake of keeping as a possibility friendship together um, maybe something like civic friendship that i think is a virtue and i want my students to practice it and when we start the course at the beginning of the semester i say so and one of the goals of the class is that my students become
0: better people
1: not just better thinkers or better citizens, but better people i my background is in ethics it's not in political science
0: it's all very abstract john yeah <laughs> Give us a, give us a few examples give us some examples of really heated, contentious debates that you've had in the classroom. And how did they go? I mean, a lot of faculty and maybe even some members of the public who are out there listening might think, whoa, this is sounds interesting, but a little scary to think that people could be really getting into it on some very strongly held oppositional views.
1: Yeah, I think people would be surprised if they came to my class and they would expect fireworks, something like crossfire, if that's still airing. And it's not, and that might disappoint them. And part of the trick, I think, of the class is that you get people to think that there's nothing really exceptional going on in talking about these things. It's only afterwards you realize, oh, gosh, we just talked about that. You get the students to think, like, there aren't stakes here where you're one side's going to win and the other side's going to lose. Let's just talk about this collectively. Let's share our stories. Let's humanize the other side. And at the end of that, you'll look back and you'll say, gosh, we just... We just had a conversation about pronouns or transgender others, whatever it is. And I didn't get angry. You wouldn't get fights in my class. And I think part of the problem with our, our culture wars right now is I think both sides want to see blood. Right? And I, I just think this is so toxic.
0: It's like a zero-sum mentality and debate rather than positive. It's sum. a
1: zero-sum and it, and, it, and, it, and it reveals that our intentions aren't really to persuade the other person.
0: Because if we're being honest with
1: ourselves, that's, that's not what we're doing. Nobody gets persuaded that way. In my class, we you know we try as much as possible to kind of practice these virtues, you know. And oh, of course, you're going to have you know tense moments, but you hope that you can kind of work through them. I recall a conversation about religious liberty and the Colorado Baker. If you recall, some student was kind of arguing on behalf of the baker. You know, this is his religious freedom. Another side, a student sided with the customer and. And you know, we realized in kind of kind of plumbing the assumptions, or that one side thought that the sexual identity of the customer should be a more protected category, or, or was more important than the religious identity or the expression of religious based on the part of the other. And another student said, "Well, why do you assume that? It seems like um, we are uh, privileging one identity over the other, or, or having to make a call." So that was kind of an interesting moment, you know. Another student said, well, well I can make an argument for." why we privilege one, you know, it's because this one's a choice and that one isn't. (laughs) And other students said, well, which one's a choice and which one isn't? And then they disagreed. They got, they came to opposite conclusions about which one was the choice and which one wasn't. And the other, one other student said, well, I just think in the case of the customer, that identity is more, it just runs deeper. It's more important, central to who that person is. (laughs) And another student said, that's not what the baker thinks. (laughs) So I thought, okay, so here's a great example where, you know, you could tell people maybe you know, getting a little upset with each other. But what we did is we got through it and collectively we came to better understandings of the w- w- kind, of, kind of some of the premises of, where, of the conclusions maybe we weren't even entirely aware of. I always get this question, maybe you were gonna ask me eventually, it's like, oh, aren't there issues, uh, opinions that are out of bounds? So I say, well, look, if, if, if it is a matter that is dividing we the people, you know, and there are people of goodwill and sound mind on both sides. It's up for discussion in my class, because I can't come up with a better standard. I've asked other people who who don't like where my Overton window is. Well, how would you do it? You know, and and the response is basically, well, we have control and we know we're right, and so this this is where the window is. That's not consistent, because in the hands of people who think differently, it would yield, you know, an Overton window. They they would be terrified of. You know, the example I sometimes give to my students is that. Uh, Lincoln debated Douglas about the expansion of slavery into the new states. Uh, Lincoln knew very well that slavery was morally heinous, but he had to debate him. He didn't have a choice. Thank God we don't have to debate that anymore. By the time he did. And so this is why I say to my students who are whatever, pro-choice or whatever, I said, you know, you haven't convinced a lot of
0: Americans. So we're going to have the conversation here. Yeah, it brings up so many questions. I mean, first of all, you mentioned questions that are out of bounds on in certain contexts, and, and that's something I've always wondered, you know, because I taught a very similar class, you know, with your sort of uh, mentorship here at Arizona State, and it was probably totally different to your experience at Duke. Is there even enough Variation in beliefs and convictions and opinions at Duke to make a class like, like yours interesting, or or do we really do have this kind of homogenous campus culture at these uh, more elite, selective institutions where either everybody thinks the same way or people are too scared to speak up if they don't? Uh, we are
1: homogenous in the in the way that you just described, and it's unfortunate. Come back to that in a second. I, I think that even in those environments, if you frame a question carefully, you can create disagreement in the room. So when I first started, I did a session on immigration and I realized that I had to, in order to get some disagreement in the room, start with the question of why not open borders everywhere in the world? Anybody can go anywhere they want. Like I had to put it way on that side in order to get a few folks to say, you know what, I don't think that's practical. But had I just started with look, are you uh, in favor of Trump's policy? Not a single student was going to... You have to uh, know. You have to
0: be able to read the room and and know where the dividing lines... And also, I think you have to know where the students are going to feel that they have some, in some way, some skin in the game so that they care enough to want to have a proper debate. Correct, correct. Now, I will say, to me, that's not ideal, what I just
1: described, the, the immigration case, because I had to set the question pretty far from where the real national conversation is or should be. So in order to get closer to that, I, in my classes, I recruit some students into my class, I know to be dissidents on campus, not provocateurs, you know, I know my students, but people are somewhat contrarian and to build up their numbers a little bit in class. So if you came into my class and I know this and I poll my students, it would be roughly a third conservative, a third centrist and a third liberal. That is not a typical Duke cross-section. You know, Duke, I don't know what we are, nine, 10% conservative, something like this. And I think it really helps the class because it means that the students who aren't liberal feel like they have a little help. But I think that the lack of viewpoint diversity among student bodies in elite higher ed is a real issue. I recently started an alumni group here at Duke called Friends for Free Speech and Intellectual Diversity. So there you have it. One of the things we're talking about is admissions. And I don't think people are talking enough about this, where we talk a lot about faculty composition, and and we should, but there's basically nothing to be done about that. But admissions, we could do something.
0: You mean uh, based on some sort of preferences or manipulation of admissions around political beliefs and views to ensure a more intellectually diverse campus?
1: Yes. The way I put it is, you know, we value diversity in admissions. Let's expand what we mean by diversity to include this, right? Students who are politically conservative or seriously religious, those two often go together, but not always. That's a
0: missing group on campus. How is this being greeted by the Duke administration? Is this something that you think the university is interested in? Well, right now they're not saying anything because we had a Supreme Court case
1: uh, that ruled against Harvard and nobody's willing to say what the plan is because it can be used against them uh, in future litigation. But I will say if you ask students who have gone through the admission process, Look, is there a penalty for being, you know, religiously conservative or just conservative? They'll say yes. I mean, and and, and I and I take their word for it. They know the game better than anybody. I was, I was talking usually with uh, Michael Roth, the president of Wesleyan. Anyways, he met with some guidance counselor up there, a feeder school, his college. Anyways, Rothers was figure well, out Well, I don't have more conservative students, and and this guidance counselor kind of laughed at him. He said, you know, if a student came to me and wanted to write an admissions essay in which she described her involvement with a pro life group it would be and i quote professional malpractice on my part to let her write that essay no joke i believe it i believe it that's that's a killer don't do that right so we're we're kind of incentivizing students to think of a certain way about themselves that you know kind of tracks kind of a progressive mindset and we're at the same time discouraging other students from revealing things about themselves that are not that. So it's no wonder our class compositions is, is going to skew. That's not the only reason. There are other reasons, but that is a reason. And so I think to return to your first question, a general lack of viewpoint, it's an issue. I think there's things to be done about it. And, and one place to start is in admissions.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because um, at a university like ASU, where the admissions are nowhere near as selective as at Duke, the, this issue is... Completely different. I mean, I had some debate topics in my class, my civil discourse class, where I tried to get students to discuss admissions, various forms of admission standards. I think we discussed the Supreme Court case about affirmative action, and they were... I would say, relatively uninterested and unmoved by this topic because they didn't have any personal experience of this sort of ultra-selective admissions topic. And so that comes back to what we were talking about before, about meeting the students where they are and picking topics that they really care about. And at, at ASU, the topic of admissions really didn't resonate with the students in the way that at Duke, I'm sure that it resonates in a different way. Something else that you said really interested me, which was this notion that you've talked to other faculty about your class and it sounds like you've even received some criticism from some of the faculty at Duke about your class who would, they would teach it differently. And that's one of my questions that I wanted to ask you from the outset, which is why did you teach this class? I mean, why did you feel that there was a demand for this class, there was a need for this class, and why was nobody else doing it already? Well, I would talk to
1: students over coffee and privately, and hear over and over again that they didn't feel comfortable expressing their true views on sensitive political topics in class and sometimes in social settings with other people that, that maybe they weren't close friends. And I was bothered by this. And then, like other people, I was, I was kind of seeing this survey data that was coming out. Um, some of these organizations like FIRE you know, have done these surveys and it was it confirmed my suspicion that this is a widespread problem. That students were afraid of kind of social or professional penalty for saying the wrong thing or just maybe sometimes saying the right thing and it coming out the wrong way or being misinterpreted right so there was a real lack of kind of trust and I decided to do something about it because I mean there's no other way to say it it's like n- nobody else was doing it or nobody else was doing it this directly and I thought in some weird way like the safest way to do it would be to just point yourself right at the, it, as in, like instead of coming at it sideways, just say, all right, first we're going to talk about why we can't talk about things, and we're going to talk about cancel culture, and you make it that direct, and just lay out in the ground rules, like this is a class in which you're going to assume goodwill on the other on the part of the people, and we're not going to cancel each other, and on and on and on, and then and then and then in a weird way, it's safer than as I said, is kind of coming at things sideways.
0: Did that ruffle a few feathers in the administration when you proposed this class? Because it's the the class is also different to other classes in that there's no real substantive subject matter, right? You can't say that you're going to learn a certain, about a certain philosophical school of thought, or you're going to learn about a specific, you know, topic in international relations or political philosophy or whatever it might be. It's about the act of being in the class and having the discussions is kind of the content of the class. So it's very different to other classes. <laughs> How? <laughs> did that go when you first proposed it to your uh, superiors at Duke? I, they were they were fine with it. It
1: is a skill based class, and 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 I am I think it's worth pointing out I'm not in a department an institute for ethics. I guess I can get away with such a thing, you know. And at any institution, Duke's not unique. I mean, you're going to have people who think if you're white you shouldn't be teaching on race, or if you're a man you shouldn't be leading a discussion on abortion, or there should be no discussion on abortion. That's a settled issue, you know. Debating that's like debating slavery. Interestingly, I, I know conservatives use that same analogy. Uh, <laughs> so, which just shows where we still need to have the conversation, right? Uh, I mean, you're going to run into that. And then you just say, well, the students say, yes, we want this class. And, and they, many more want it than I can teach. So I listen to the students. And, you know, this is the other thing that gets lost sight in these debates about, you know, should you teach it or not? It's like, what, what, what do the students want? They're the ones paying
0: $80,000 a year. Uh, Duke, at least, if they say that we want more classes like this, we ought to listen to them. Speak a little bit more about that. It resonates with students. Your, your class, I think. How many do you enroll every semester in your class? I have thirty-five students this semester,
1: but I kind of, as an experiment, one time set the enrollment at a hundred just to see what would happen, and it it filled before the seniors could finish the registering. So that tells you something. About the level of interest,
0: do the students respond across the political spectrum? is it or are there certain groups of students that are deeply troubled by the experience of hearing contrarian views? because, you know, some critics of contemporary university campuses would probably assume that the most liberal students who presumably have sort of some sort of hegemony over campus discourse, they might resent the fact that people that disagree get to speak up with them in your class. Is that the case at all?, well, I've had students say to me,
1: that was hard to hear, but I think it was good for me to hear, it. you know, and to me that that's that's fine. That's a liberal education. It might be hard to hear, but they also come away realizing that their fellow students with those views. They're not monsters. They're not motivated by hate. They have reasons for what they think. Right. And and you just got to get them comfortable enough to tell you.
0: What would be the main criticism? I assume you get these uh, anonymous student evaluations that we all get at the end of the semester. Are there any critiques that seem to come up time and time again in the comments?
1: You know, I, had a, I have one that I've gotten a couple of times, but most recently it was, it was pretty funny. It was, it was a, it, a student taking issue with the fact that I don't give my own political views in class. So I teach from like a neutral position. You're a moderator
0: of the discussion more than yes, a, a, yeah, yes, a referee, yes. perhaps and, even. And this drove him or her crazy <laughs> and said
1: like, <laughs> Surely, you have these like you owe it to us, and this <laughs> this this affects how you teach and I could tell though reading through it that this person couldn 't figure out what they were. my view is that is the other thing i 'll say is that my classes are electives to some degree, my students self select into my class, and they're the ones who feel like, hey, I want to have this conversation you know maybe conservative students who feel like they can't say it in the other classes, and liberal students who are who are saying like "I want more viewpoint diversity, so those are the students I get the students. Who would say, like, I don't think this class should occur, are not going to
0: sign up. They're not going to take it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Now, I, 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 which uh, this is important because there are schools considering creating kind of required or mandatory classes on civil discourse. Part of me thinks that's a great idea. (laughs) I had a student recently in his feedback say, I love this class, but I think the students on campus who most, most need it would never take it. And that's, He's probably
0: right. And uh, it actually leads to some interesting questions about free association. Tell me a little bit more about this effort to roll your class out to more universities, because I was a member of this first group last summer. I think there were maybe 25 or so of us from universities all over the country that have gone back, and I think all of us by now probably have taught a class not identical to yours, but following the broad precepts or ideas of your class. But I believe you had another cohort of people come in this summer. So so tell me a little bit more about how that went last year and last summer and what you're working on moving forward.
1: When I wrote my op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, a head of a foundation happened to read it and reached out to me. And asked me, do you think you could teach other people how you teach your class? And if I recall what I said, it was something like, I'm not sure, uh, maybe. And um, one thing led to another. And we finally received a a two-year grant from this foundation to convene these summer seminars here at Duke in which 20 or so faculty chosen from kind of a pool of candidates uh, and from across the country would come for a couple of days, and I, along with a co-instructor, would tell them how we teach our classes on civil discourse. Simple things like how to structure the syllabus and ground rules and ways of motivating students and what happens when things go wrong, very practical things. And then there would be kind of a general discussion about some of the more difficult... Issues surrounding civil discourse in the classroom. Like, what about DEI and free speech? You know, what about the limits of the Overton window? Something we talked about earlier in this conversation, things like that, right? Uh, we did our first one in the summer of 2022, and Henry, you were part of that
0: group i I was there fantastic i was one of the few non-political philosophers and i was completely out of my depth no no, i would
1: i would say you you should have assigned
0: me some ancient greek philosophy to read before i got there john then i would have i would have been able to keep up I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not yeah. very well educated, you know. I only have a PhD in political science.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but I'll say this, and I, and I, I hope you'll second this. Uh, okay, so one thing I hadn't anticipated, and was, it was delightful the way it happened, was that the subject matter of the seminar, Civil Discourse, kind of became its theme or its practice, its plot, because the people themselves, who were an intellectually diverse group of people, and that was intentional on our part, found themselves engaged in very honest, very civil, and very charitable conversation about things. And it was a beautiful thing. And the other thing we discovered, I hadn't anticipated this either, was the extent to which faculty felt as though they were in what was to them a very special environment in as much as they were with other faculty and felt comfortable and safe talking about these sensitive things.
0: Yeah, it was great. It was very different for a normal faculty experience. Normally, we just go and discuss our research at conferences to have the opportunity to talk about teaching and that, and about civil discourse and about our students in that way was really unique and valuable.
1: It was great. And then this August, we had another group of 20 or so faculty, again, from kind of diverse, you know, types of institutions, secular, religious, liberal arts, public universities, people in different fields, and and people with different worldviews, religious, non-religious, conservative, liberal. And it it was excellent. And it looks like we're going to do two more next summer. So if anybody's listening to this saying, I'd like to do that, keep an eye out for the call for applications. I think one thing that prevents
0: some people from teaching classes on civil discourse is they say, well, something could go wrong. Right. Everyone thinks about the possible risks and not about the possible rewards. It's actually a real illustration of this, uh, whatever it is Kahneman and Sversky's risk aversion theory. Yeah. I don't lie to people and say, oh, nothing will go wrong. I say,
1: yeah, sooner or later something will go wrong and it's worth it. Keep going because of all the, the students you're going to benefit. So we are, as this would be <laughs> A subject for a whole other podcast in the academy, a very a risk averse crowd. And I have often wondered why, what that's about. I mean, just that, that is like relative well, to that, society.
0: People that direct their entire careers towards getting lifetime tenure and that kind of job security are maybe just, maybe that's hardwired into them.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wonder, I wonder what it is about if we're, you know, people of that disposition are drawn to the academy or if it makes us that way.
0: Probably both. both.
1: Yeah, we do not like taking. And 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 we're very sensitive to the opinions of of others. I also true. When you know Joshua Katz was fired, there was a there was an article written. I forget who it was, Mark Bauerlein, or something. Anyways, he's saying you know Katz's friends and longtime colleagues just went totally silent. If you're not in the academy, you might not understand this. But you, what line is in the academy, he says, you, you understand that in within the university. What other people think of you is everything, because when you're peer reviewed, it's what other people think. It's when you when you get hired, it's what other people think of you. That is the standard. There's no other standard. So when you're dead socially, you're dead professionally that's it. And so that's why it's so terrifying. So no wonder we're so sensitive to what other people think of us, our peers.
0: It's true. But I think that as you sort of discussed earlier, we sometimes have a completely distorted view of the risks. I mean, I had the exact same experience to you in my class about civil discourse and discussing these contentious topics and that it was not really a fiery, emotional, argumentative atmosphere. It was, as I said, sometimes I'd pick the topics wrong where there was too much consensus and the students just weren't that interested, for example. That was actually, turned out to be the greatest failing on my part was when it wasn't contentious enough and they all shrugged and said, oh, admissions, I'd never really thought about that, next. (laughs) But there were other topics that were much more contentious, topics that mostly that hit really close to home. Like, for example, we discussed the uh, contentious issue of whether Kyle Rittenhouse should have been allowed to enroll at ASU after the shootings in Wisconsin that he was involved in because he had claimed at his trial that he was enrolled at ASU. And that really got the students talking from really different viewpoints. And that was probably the most contentious discussion. But again, the next session I said, does anyone want to revisit this topic? Does anyone feel uncomfortable? And people just shrugged and said no. And so, Again, you know, I think the risks are really less than we realize to having this sort of a class, at least in my experience. And the rewards are significant. I mean, the, the students were all so grateful to having this experience in my class last semester. And the teaching evaluations I got were definitely the most emphatically positive that I've ever received. And like, Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I got a lot of comments like, this is the best class I've ever had at ASU. Ah. (laughs) All students at ASU should be required to take a class like this. I mean I think the fact that I'm not from the United States actually helped me in in this. Yeah. I'll I can literally yeah. claim to not I, really I be don't involved. Understand you yeah, I'm not, yeah, yeah, I'm not I'm yeah, not involved yeah, yeah, in this discussion even at all. if you do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And <laughs> even if I pretended that I was involved maybe they wouldn't take me seriously. And so that I think helped me to be an impartial advocate, but it was um a great experience. So you're going to do two more courses next year so this class is expanding you're organizing an alumni group at duke around the topic of free speech what else have you got in the works around the, these topics of civil discourse and free speech it sounds like you're uh, pretty busy
1: i am you know this alumni group which you mentioned i, I formed with a, a former trustee of duke uh, peter Kahn, and there were other free speech alumni groups popping up around the country that were kind of external to their universities and uh, MIT was the first after the whole Dorian Abbott controversy, right? But we had the idea of like going to the administration and putting it within the university, and we have. And it's going to be, it's a great thing. We had our first event at Spring Reunions, and I think we had 200, 250 people there, something like this. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to have our next event at a Homecoming, and it'll be on the future of Duke admissions. So, you know, it's like a panel of faculty, students, and so on, who who have opinions about these things. The idea being to kind of model civil discourse. But the point of that group is really, you know, to kind of get alums together who are concerned about the future of free speech and viewpoint diversity in higher ed. And so some measures like giving faculty suggested language on their syllabi about free speech and the university's commitment to it, or a session on free speech, its importance, at freshman orientation. How about that? So between that and, and teaching classes, and, you know, I have five little kids. I, I keep pretty busy. I, I'm teaching a couple of new classes in the spring, one of which is called The Christian Story About Christianity. It's something I'm actually qualified to teach on, unlike the class we've been discussing. But the, the other one is called Men. So it's a class about masculinity. And this has become a culture war issue around which I think civil discourse is just completely broken down, completely.
0: Well, John, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you for this discussion. And I'm just going to ask you the question that I ask all our guests, which is whether you have a suggestion of a book or a film or a documentary that you would recommend to our listeners who are interested in the topic of civil discourse and debate. How
1: about two texts? Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermon on loving your enemies, which I I consider King the exemplar of how to persuade people. And in that sermon, he talks about the need for for loving at all times and as a way to change people's hearts. And uh, the second one, Julia Galef's book, The Scout Mindset, published recently, in which she makes a case for trying to see the world as it really is instead of how you want it to be. Interesting. <laughs> it sounds very simple. I right? hadn't heard of that it one. Turns out it's hard. Um, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a neat book. Um, I don't agree with every last thing in it. You never, you never do with a book, but it's a, it's a very helpful book in trying to kind of get young people or people of any age to kind of think about how we can be better reasoners and not be so partisan, not be in soldier mode about our views because
0: it's that soldier mode where we're just defending, defending that prevents us from engaging in meaningful civil discourse also it's the contrast between the scout mode and the soldier mode scout and soldier very interesting thank you very (laughs) much john and thank you very much for being on the podcast thank you for having me